Have you ever wondered what's a low risk way to get into real estate, really be able to learn it without using any of your own money and without having to take any of the risk? Well, that's what we go into today in today's episode with Isaac Grace. We go into how to get started in wholesaling, how to be able to analyze deals, really learn more about real estate and build that solid foundation before investing. We go into fix and flips, his buy and hold strategy. We go into burrs, hard money, and so much more. Isaac Grace, he is a real estate entrepreneur, father, and author who's focused on one dream of building a legacy during his lifetime. At the young age of 21, he got started working in real estate with little to no experience, but with his courage and never quit mentality, Isaac Grace made his way through it. And since 2014, his company has closed just under 300 transactions, grossing over $2.5 million in revenue. Now, Isaac Grace's mission as Millennial Hope Dealer is to help others pursue excellence by showing them what being a real business in residential real estate investing. In this episode, we go into so many incredible things. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. My name is Sophia. This is the shit show of my 20s. My goal is to make your 20s less of a shit show. And without further ado, let's get started. Thank you so much, Isaac, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. So I'd love to start. Tell me about your 20s. Feel free to include any shit show moments we don't resonate with. Let's start there. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Sophia, thank you for having me on your platform. I'm super, super excited to be here today. So I'm Isaac Grace. I would say in my 20s, most people may have kind of got the party in now, you know, made all their mistakes and like kind of bumped their head a few times. But I'm super proud of myself in my 20s because I actually got in real estate at 21 years old. And um, when I just turned 30 about two or three weeks ago, I, I said to myself, I'm so thankful for all the investing that I did in myself in my 20s. So in my 20s, I literally like focused on investing in myself primarily just real estate, but um, I've went out to different events. I've joined different masterminds. I've literally invested into myself all of my 20s, and I've really been able to kind of figure out my my career path moving forward. Outside of that, I mean, I, do, I did have two children in my 20s, you know, which was kind of a blessing. They've kind of helped me stay real, real focused and keep me on track of not going down the wrong path. But I've had moments where, you know, I was, you know, maybe partying a little bit too much um, on a certain month versus another month. But for the most part, I can honestly say that I did my thing in my 20s and I stayed focused. I love that. And I'm curious for you, what was it that like at 21, you're like, I got to get into real estate? You know what it was? So most people go through their like identity crisis in their 20s. They're trying to find out who am I? Like, what do I want to do with my life? Let me get set up for my 30s. But unfortunately, in my teenage years, I went through that. So I grew up with my mother and, and my stepfather. You know, they raised us. And their relationship separated when I was like 12, 13 years old. And my mom moved down to Atlanta, Georgia, and I was from New Jersey. And at the time, I did not want to go to Georgia because I knew nothing about Georgia. And I was from this one town, Lakewood, New Jersey, my entire life. So I negotiated with my mom and I ended up staying with my grandmother. So going into high school, I moved in with my grandmother, which was my father's mom. 
And my father was incarcerated, like, all of my upbringing. So he wasn't really in my life, but his mom was always in my life as well as my older brother. So I moved with her my freshman year, and it was a totally different environment. And I was a knucklehead a little bit, but not too much. But I, like, I never disrespected my grandmother, but I stayed out late. Um, I didn't come home on time from time to time. So them little things like that were kind of frustrating. So she ended up kicking me out my sophomore year of high school. So I got into a fight in school over some nonsense back and forth talk with this kid. We get in a fight. She's like, I'm tired of you. I can't do it. You got to go. I ended up moving in with my uncle. So my uncle was like 24 years old. This is my dad's brother. He was 24 years old. I'm 16 turning 17. And um, he took me in, but my uncle was young. And like, I come from an upbringing where like, you know, my father was incarcerated for selling drugs. Uh, my uncle at the time was selling drugs as well. So he kind of took me in and due to the activity that, that he was doing, he ended up getting in trouble and was going off to jail. So at 16 years old, when he was going off to jail, he did give me somewhere to stay with a cousin, like in Browns Mills, New Jersey, which is like west of where we're from. But I didn't want to go there neither. So, um, and I also had friends that were selling drugs while I was in high school. So I ended up moving in with a friend at 17 years old, going to my senior year. So the only agreement was that I had to pay $300 a month in rent with them, you know? So at that point, going into my senior year of high school, at that moment, I always realized that I had to focus on generating money. Like I couldn't call my mom. I was too prideful to call my mom because she always wanted me to come back home anyway. So I always say, mom, I'm good. I don't need it. I'm going to figure it out. My father was still incarcerated at this time. I was on bad terms with my grandmother. Uh, my uncle was in jail. So all of my family, I, like, I literally had nobody to go to. So I created this um, mentality where my biggest fear was like not to have money. So it started to create the entrepreneurial spirit well before I became an entrepreneur. So I did work at McDonald's for a little bit, but I, I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. I hated it. But I tried it for a little bit. And then eventually I started selling drugs. You know, like my senior year of high school, I started selling drugs. And going through all of that stuff right there kind of made my 20s. Like I had my mind made up that if I can find something that I can make money and that's not going to get me in trouble, I'm going to stick to it. And at that time, I didn't even know about entrepreneurship. But December of my senior year, I was involved in a drug raid uh, where my friend that I was living with, his house got raided. Long story short, I was also in this boxing program called No Guns, Just Gloves. So once I got raided, I ended up calling them because like, you know, I was 17 years old. I was still a minor and they let me like obviously call somebody to, to um, kind of tell them what was going on and they come get me. So I called them Victor and Stephanie Lashley and they owned a boxing program called No Guns, Just Gloves. And they pretty much took me in at that time. So they said, you know, Ike, like, we really like you. We didn't know your situation was this bad. Like, you're still a kid. We want to give you a chance. So they took me in and they were entrepreneurs. So they ran a, a fitness gym. So I literally used to shadow behind them. I, I was doing amateur boxing in New Jersey, but I got to shadow like Stephanie, like running her books, talking with clients, um, walking clients through the gym. And Vic was more of the instructor. So he was like a martial arts instructor, a fitness instructor. So that was my first taste of entrepreneurship. I would watch them take all this money to the bank at the end of every single day. I would watch her books and like so much little stuff that I didn't even know was being planted into me at 17 and 18 years old. So that's kind of, that was my 20s. Like my, from 16 to 19 was kind of like my 20s for the average person. 
Wow. That's crazy. You had so many experience in like that short amount of time. Like you had no choice whether like you just had to figure out, I need to know how to make money. I need to learn this. I need to learn that. And it was like a necessity. It wasn't like something you kind of just got to choose around, which I think is really interesting. Exactly. Yep. Mm. And then like, did you see them do real estate or like what was kind of like the catalyst of like, I'm going to do it through this modality? Because I feel like there's so many different ways you can make money. Yeah. But what was it about like real estate has to be like my way? Yeah. So no, I didn't see them do real estate. But what ended up happening is um, I stayed with them to about when I first turned 19, then I ended up moving to my own apartment. And then a couple months later, I started having my first child. So my first child was born um, September of 2013. So I was 20 years old. And during that time, I found real estate through YouTube. So you know that this is the day of information. So I was on YouTube and I seen a, a clip. It said three-time felon turned real estate mogul. And at the time, you know, when I moved away from them, I did kind of get back into selling drugs because I went back to my hometown and I started hanging around all the same friends that I was away from for this two or three years. And I started finding myself crawling right back into the same path that God had kind of saved me from. And when I seen that article or that headline, I said three-time felon turned real estate mogul. And I almost seen myself in the, the message that I watched. So it was a guy talking about, he was from New Jersey, and he was talking about how, you know, he was getting in trouble at a younger age, found real estate, and three years later, he made a million dollars doing it. So I said, you know what? I never thought about real estate because at the time I was actually going to get my CDL license to be a truck driver. And I also was working, I was potentially going to buy this car detail shop. So this guy had a car detail shop he owned for 15 years. He wanted to sell it. He let me, he pretty much let me rent it for a month or let me have it to get a feel for if I wanted to do the business. And then I seen this ad. So for like three months, I was pondering with these three business ideas and real estate just outweighed all of them when I really looked at it. I didn't want, never want to be a truck driver. I hate the idea of driving heavy machinery. The car detail shop, see now I have a weird fetish with washing cars. I genuinely do like cars, but I said... I can't see this being super profitable, like super, super profitable washing cars. And then real estate was just like, it's a tangible asset. It, it gives you cash flow. You can make a lot of money. Most wealthy people are buying real estate. So this is probably what I need to do for the long term. Hmm, I love that. So you watch the YouTube video, you start to have these ideas going. When that happened, did you have any like thing come up for you of like, am I sure I want to go this route? Because I feel like with real estate, there's also a lot of risk involved. Yeah. So I'm curious if you had like your mind go there, or, like you were like, just like 100% set on it and were able to like, kind of like talk yourself into doing it. Yeah, I would definitely say I was 100% set on it. Because like I said, I did have my, my daughter at the time. And every all of them three businesses, I was hitting a roadblock where like, this is going to be hard. So once I realized no matter what way I went, there was going to be some type of adversity. I was okay with that. I think the biggest fear that I had was like talking with people, presenting myself because I knew who I was. I was a drug dealer. And no matter how much I tried to hide that, I could not not look myself in the mirror and know who I was. So, um, so those are the only fears that I had, but what was cool about the program that I took, it, it taught us about residential real estate investing, flipping houses, like buying them, renovating them up and selling them, buying them, renting them out and being a landlord. And then a loophole strategy called wholesaling real estate. And that really drew to me because you didn't, you don't need a real estate license. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need a lot of experience. You don't need no credit. 
So I said, you know what? Like, I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy houses in New Jersey. So I'm going to stick to this strategy because I can make money by finding motivated sellers and then selling them deals that I'm doing with the motivated sellers to buyers and making a fee in between. So I stuck with that strategy for my first three years in the business. And with wholesaling, I'm curious because I know it takes like a lot of grit to do wholesaling because I assume like sellers tell you no all the time. They say like a higher price or maybe they have this idea in their head that their like house is worth more than it actually is or like all these things kind of come up around the house and the house could be very emotional like with the sale. So I'm curious with all that, what's something that's helped you like stay consistent with wholesaling when all those obstacles were kind of thrown at you? Yeah, I think it was the mentorship for me. So I've joined like multiple mentorships, but in 2016, so my first three years, I'm not gonna lie, I did my first deal in six months. I made $12,500. And the later that year, I went on to make like about another $60,000. But over the next two years, I was averaging anywhere from about 50 to 60,000 a year but I wasn't consistent. Like I would have waves where I was motivated. I would do my marketing. I didn't have the support. You know, I didn't really know what I was doing, even though I was making money. That's the cool thing about wholesaling real estate. Like you can literally make money and not understand why a person's buying a deal or how real estate works. But in 2016, everything changed. I went out to a, a summit, a real estate summit, and they started teaching us the, like the sales, the, the KPIs is what they're called, key performance indicators in the real estate business. So one of the biggest key performance indicators I learned about was like offers to contract ratio. So, you know, yeah, I used to get so discouraged. Like, well, you know, everybody wants this high number for their house. Every offer I'm making, they're saying no. And even when I was doing deals and I closed the deal, my fear was I didn't know when my next deal was coming. But when they taught me that KPI that it takes about 20 offers to get one contract, that changed everything for me. I stopped running the business emotionally and I started running the business off of the numbers because like you said, I would do a deal and then I'll say, oh my God, I got to do all this work again to find another deal. And I don't know when it's going to come. I don't have any type of statistical understanding of the business. But then once I learned that, I said, okay, it's just a numbers game. It's like a, it's a big numbers game. You get good at the marketing, you generate quality leads, and most people are going to say no, but you can follow up with all them. But on average, for every 20 people that you go out and meet and make an offer, you're going to get about one to say yes. And I measured that over about a two-year time frame, and it was pretty accurate that, you know, so now it's like, even though I still feel like sometimes I don't know when my next deal is coming, but I can just play to the numbers and I say a deal is going to, it's going to come. It's inevitable because our marketing is so strong. Our sales process is so strong. Our follow-up process is so strong. We're at this point now, we're doing anywhere from five to eight deals every single month, year over year for like the last four years. And it's funny because last month I only did one deal. Like that was the first time in like so long and I know why that happened, but like this, the month of June, man, we probably done in the last seven days, probably picked up like eight contracts, you know, so we're making up for that slow month. Hmm. That's so cool. And like, I love that you have that max trick too, because it's so easy to stay in that place of being emotional and stay of like, oh my gosh, like, where am I going to come up with money? But having that metric is so yeah. nice to have. So rely on that. And yeah. so I'm curious, so you get, you go, you talk to the sellers, you get the contract, then what do you do after with that contract? Yes. So when we go out there, we meet sellers. See, what we do is we try to create like a, a solution-based business model with homeowners. Because 
we know that 99% of sellers are not going to be our ideal client. So when we try to walk through every house, we try not to be one-sided on a cash offer, buy this as an investment property. We pay you as least as possible, and but you get cash and you sell quickly. We try to go in there genuinely understanding the homeowner's situation. So if I'm walking through a property, right, and let's just say, and I know I'm going a little off the question, but just give you guys a little bit more depth. And I realized that, number one, this lady house is really nice. She's motivated to sell, but she's price motivated. And her motivation is that she wants to go buy a bigger house in Florida for her kids, right? Like that's not a motivated seller that we're looking for. Someone like that, I would say, hey, look, I comped out this area. You're, you're in a very nice area. The equity has grown over the last year or two. Your house is in amazing condition. We should really consider taking this to the open market. Right. And she may say, well, you, you sent me a postcard that you can pay cash. And I'll explain to her, look, this is how my business works. You know, typically in order for me to buy a house and add it to my business to make money, there needs to be some type of work or even outside of, I need to make a profit on the deal. You know, so like I'm understanding your situation. You're trying to go to Florida. You want to cash out. I just don't think this is a good fit for us. Now, if they insist that will be different, but that's an example of how we are more of a solution-based company. Now, when we find that motivated seller and she's distressed and we negotiate that price and we sign a contract, what I do from there is I will package up the deal. So I'll put an email together and I will send it off to my entire list of agents and, and buyers that I work with. So let's just say I did the deal with the seller at $100,000, use easy numbers. Me and her agreed that I can buy the house from her for $100,000. In my contract, I have verbiage and stipulations that will allow me to sell the property after I purchase it immediately or just simply assign my contract to another party prior to the closing. So what's going what's gonna to happen in is I'm going to market it to my buyers. So I'm going to blast it out email. Hey, great off-market deal. Here's all the details. I'm asking $120,000. Here's what it's worth. Here's the pictures. Here's the videos. Here's the photos. Here's all the disclaimers. Here's how it works if you want to do business with me. A buyer calls up. Hey, Isaac. I like the deal. I want it. I want it sight unseen. Here's my proof of funds. When we close this deal, right? So I send him an assignment contract and I also send him a copy of the original contract to look at. Most people will say, well, are you supposed to send him the original contract? If you're going to do an assignment of contract, you have to because they have to know what they're taking over. They're going to want to read your contract to see what you have. So I give him both contracts and then he'll sign them and send them back to me. And we can use like a platform like DocuSign or HelloSign. So um, you can do this like if you're in a different state, like you can sign these contracts. You don't need to be in person. Same thing with the seller. I've literally done deals where I've never seen the house or even never met the seller and did it all virtually over the phone by having a thorough detailed conversation. So back to the thing that the, the buyer was sending the contract back. Then what I'm going to do is I'm going to send all the original contract and the assignment contract to the title company or the closing attorney, whoever you're using. I'm also going to put an email together and say, hey, title company, this is ABC Investment. They're going to be buying this property from you. Here's the assignment and original contract. Can you send him your wire and instructions? He needs to make a $15,000 non-refundable deposit. Until the buyer makes a deposit, the deal's not solidified. You know, and we have that in our assignment contract that he has 24 hours to make the deposit or I'll keep selling the deal. But let's just say he wait, he makes a deposit. He's all good to go. Once that's done, then I'm going to go ahead and introduce the seller to the title agent and start the title process over here. So I separate both of the relationships. And then day of closing, 
the, the buyer will wire in all his money to the title company. Title company gives the seller the 100000 that we agreed on. I get the $20,000 that me and the buyer agreed on, and the buyer gets the asset. And he pays closing costs and like title fees and all that. So the title agent gets paid as well. Hmm. Okay. And then for the buyer, do they have to use a specific type of loan to work with the wholesaler? Or can they use any loan or do they have to have cash? So they can use cash, obviously. In terms of loans, hard money loans are typically the best and the easiest loans to use. I've used a conventional loan before and the deal got ugly because the problem with the conventional loans is that the the bank don't want to see the assignment contract. Like they don't want to pay that assignment fee. So what ended up happening is they kind of blew my spot up. But what they wanted to do was just bundle the assignment fee and the purchase price. So now the seller's looking like, well, how am I getting... And, and I was making a lot of money, like 50000 on this deal. Like, why is there 50000 more? I got the deal done, but now the seller had me and forced me to pay him more money. So he took some of my money in order to get the deal done. So conventional mortgages are a lot, are a lot tougher. So yeah, hard money loans are kind of like the best way to do it or cash. Yeah. And I'm curious for you, how many of those properties that you're wholesaling, how many of those do you decide to keep? Good question. So I would say I probably buy over the last two years any anywhere from one to two properties per quarter. You know, I want to buy more, um, but I got a business partner as well. So, you know, we're kind of I have more risk tolerance um, and I'm sure we'll probably talk about my worst deal. So I won't spoil that yet. But um, just recently, we kind of had our worst deal. And I think he's still a little scared from that. But for me, like you heard my story, like I've been risking my life since 16 years old. You know, he kind of come from more of a conservative household, lived with his mom till about 25, um, had a job. So like for me, risk is nothing. You know, like I'm not scared of risk. Of course, I don't like losing money, but I will lose money at the risk of overcoming a fear. And we'll probably talk about that soon. So my goal is to get to probably buying like four to five properties per quarter. Hmm. It's like you're just bringing up all these great topics. I was like, I want to go here. I want to go here. <laughs> I have to go back there. But like going to that, because like I'm a very similar situation of like I have a hard time taking risks. Like even though it may look like certain things in my store I've taken risks, like I have a really hard time taking risks. I'm very conservative. I'm curious, how do you teach risks to someone who has like a more conservative approach? I'll give you this to me and my partner. So, so for example, like if like if I say, yo, we should buy this deal and we should keep it long term, he'll say, but the interest rate is real high right now. There's not gonna be no money to be made. And I'll say to him something like, Well, the cost of you looking up 10 years from now and not owning shit, excuse my language, is way more expensive than that interest rate that you're stuck on right now. You know, I try to explain to him that look, like the interest rate is just a moment in time. You know, like it, we don't know if it will ever go down, but I'm sure it will go down. You know, I'm positive it will go down. But the biggest risk that you're going to take is you're going to look up like you did when we looked up now and we look back for five years. We've been in business and we sold hundreds of homes and we don't own nothing and we're still chasing and we made millions of dollars and we're still chasing deals every month. You're going to look back the next five to 10 years and you're going to be in the same exact position you are today. And you're going to look at every one of these houses. You're going to say, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, you know? So for me, I'm always look at the positive of every negative situation. It's just like, yeah, the interest rate is high, but if we get the property at a great discount and we renovate it, so there's no maintenance and we put the right tenant in it. And this is possible for all three of these things to go perfect because we know how to do this. 
We'll make two, three hundred dollars a month. But if we stack up five of these properties a year for the next five years, number one, there's going to be some cash flow built. But when that interest rate drops and you get to refinance all these properties, you were the definition of proactive versus reactive because what happens when the interest rates drop? Now everyone wants to buy houses. Now it's harder to get deals. The prices go back up. But because you were proactive, while everybody don't want to buy because interest rates, we were buying. And now we don't got to hunt deals. All we got to do is go back to the bank and say, hey, Mr. Bank, you remember me? Drop my interest rate 5%. Drop my interest rate by 4%. 4%. And now that's every house that you're making two to $300 cash flow, that could change the $800 to $1,100. So without doing any more work, you just increase your cash flow by five figures because you got over the interest rate, the little thing that you're looking at. So that's like kind of the conversation my partner and I have. And it gets stressful because when you got a partner, it's not just what you want to do. But I just see the vision and I know because I look back five years ago and all the houses I was selling, like there was this certain area in um, at the Jersey Shore called Asbury Park. And we were finding these multifamily properties for forty, fifty, seventy thousand dollars. These same properties today are worth four or five hundred thousand dollars. And I'll give them an example and just say, look, like if and at this time we weren't buying and flipping homes or being landlords, we were only wholesaling because of our experience. So that's what got us into buying and then flipping because we like, look, that wave is going to come again. So the houses we can buy right now for $200,000 that are worth maybe $350,000, $400,000, 10 years from now, the houses may shoot up and go to six, dollars $700,000. We're at the Jersey Shore. The values are not going to go down here. So that's my thing of risk is I look in the future and I ask my future self, would I be satisfied with the decision I'm about to make right now, selling this property? And if I know it's no, because that theory I just told you, then I'm going to take the risk and ride it out with that higher interest rate. Hmm. I love that theory. I love that you have the pairing, right? You have you who could take all the risk, and then you have your partner who's a little less risk, but then you guys meet in the middle or somewhere, and then you're able to have a good partnership. I think you have to have both sides kind of to be able to have that blend. Yeah. That's cool. It's definitely pros and cons to it. Um, because sometimes, you know, when you have somebody that's conservative around you and you are always aggressive, you begin to question yourself like, well, am I really just doing too much or moving too fast? And you can you never know the answer to it. So sometimes you just got to say, you know what, let's just use his attributes as well. Let's just slow down. Let's just sell this one quick, whatever, you know, and sometimes you just got to be a team player and just, you know, everything don't have to go your way. Definitely, definitely. And for the properties that you're keeping, are you doing more like fix and flips? Or are you doing more burrs? Are you kind of holding them long term? What's kind of your strategy there? So yeah, so the way that we look at our deals is anything that we're all in under 250000 we will consider to keep it as a rental. So in Jersey, a lot of our purchase in like our purchase and rehabs get up to like four fifty and even up to like 600000 So those type of deals we will sell. Because it's just harder to hold on to that type of mortgage and rely on the tenant to pay you $4,500 a month, $5,000 a month as a long-term tenant. So anything that's lower in the, in, in the lower of the purchase and hold, um, renovation costs, so when we refinance the, the total loan, $250 or under, we try to keep them as rentals because we know we can kind of park that price range somewhere in between like a $2,000 to $2,300 a month on once you refi. 
and in most of the areas here in Jersey, well, with the high interest rates, but most of the rents in certain, a lot of these areas are going to be a twenty-seven dollars to $3,000 a month rental area. So we can bake in our cash flow even at a higher interest rate. Anything over that, we'll flip it. Now, with, with fix and flips, our minimum net profit is $80,000. You know, so in order to create that, we like to see about 120 up to 150 gross without like my, my cost of holding the loan, without my real estate commissions. Um, but if I see like, okay, my all-in purchase and renovations is 400000 but I know this house can go for five fifty to five seventy. I'm gonna I'm gonna flip that type of deal all day long because even if it takes me six months, I'm paying twenty five hundred dollars a month in interest. Six months, that's like extra. I think fifteen thousand dollars estimated. My commissions might be another twenty thousand, twenty five. I take thirty five, forty thousand off that one fifty. I make one hundred and ten net on the deal. Mm. Are you doing mainly single families? Or multifamily as well? Yeah, so I only do residential, but I do do multifamilies four units and under, but it's all residential. No commercial yet. Not yet. I'm working on it though. Well, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on buying like a single family home versus buying like a duplex or quad. So obviously the more doors, the better, you know, in terms of cash flow. Single seat in our part of New Jersey, there's a lot more single families, single family properties you know, and you know, the rents are high here in New Jersey as well. So the single families work really good, but multifamilies, they, of course, they work better. Definitely. And I'm curious for like the fix and flips, is there an amount of work that you look for in terms of like, I don't want to do too much work or like, do, are you looking for like cosmetic things or kind of when you're looking at property, what are your requirements there? So, I mean, for me, I take it all. If it's a good deal, it's a good deal. So right now I literally have a deal and this is just like, this is happening in real time right now. I have a property in a town called Freehold, New Jersey. Very desirable area. Very, very desirable area. We lost the deal a year ago in this same neighborhood. But normally what I do after every property appointment is I drive the neighborhood and I look for other opportunities. And I was sending this guy um, postcards and he called me and he, he said, Isaac, I got five of your postcards because I asked him, he said, I, I'm talking to a lot of people, you know, and I'm like, well, why would you pick us versus everybody else? He said, I, to be honest, you just marketed to me a lot. You see, you seem like you wanted more than everybody else. And i read your story online. You have an amazing story. So more of the story is we got this house under contract for $397,000. This house is worth 760 to about almost $800,000. So it's a higher price point areas, but the whole foundation is shot on the property. It's a 2,500 um, square foot house, four bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms, colonial, two-story, two-car garage, super big lot. It's a, it's a big project. But one of the foundation walls is literally falling in. The house has to be raised. That side needs to be rebuilt. And portions of the rest of the foundation need to be rebuilt. And the entire basement is completely molded out. So me... I love that type of opportunity because I'm more like, I want to see this house get raised. I want to see this be rebuilt. I want to see the whole process. But right now on this same house that I just told you, we got under contract for 397,000, we got investors offering us 440,000. So we can sell it and make 43,000, 42,500 real quick. If I do the entire project, I'm looking at gross anywhere from about 120 worst case scenario Best case scenario, up to almost 200000 gross. So my partner, he don't want nothing to do with the project. He don't want to do it. He, I'm just like, bro, like, 
So my theory is this, like if I know I'm not keeping the house, I'm going to get paid one time on the property. Do I want to make $42,000 in 30 days? Or do I want to potentially go out there and make $200,000 gross in eight months? Regardless, we're only getting paid on a deal one time because if you sell it in 30 days, you'll never make money on it again. And even if it takes you eight months, you're still going to only make money one time on it. So my theory is do the project over the eight months, make a bunch of more money in between there. And then when you sell that house, because the house is going to sell, like it's one of the neighborhoods that it, it's your pristine neighborhood. Like it's a A-class neighborhood. I'm trying to tell you nothing in there is worth less than 500000 These are where your Wall Street workers, your corporate executives are living in these type of neighborhoods. So I'm like, look, we got a contractor. That's a great project for him. It's a team sport and it's a good deal. But, you know, he, he doesn't want nothing to do with the project. So I'll be probably dealing with him over the next day or two with, with what we're going to do with that house there. So, wow. And how much do you think it's going to cost to fix all of that? I got a quote, 200000 Okay. So think about it. I buy that three ninety seven five. I put $200,000 into it. I'm all in at 600000 easy numbers. It's worth seven sixty to 800000 So I got one hundred and sixty dollars to $200,000 in gross profit. Again, I got holding costs, right? I got commission. So even if you just say $50,000, I'm going to make one hundred and ten to one hundred and fifty net on a deal. So it's going to take me a little bit longer, but my theory still is I got either $40,000 one time or 110 to 150. They're both not bad. Both yeah. Great options. They're both great options. So, you know. Good options. And with like estimating that you're going to sell that house like maybe eight months from now, how are you also estimating like if the prices go down eight months from now, if anything changes in the market? I'm curious how you're like factoring for that. I mean, I really don't. I guess I don't factor for it because they said that to us a year ago, that prices were going to go down. In the beginning of this year, they said that. But, you know, it's just not happening. You know, I'm, I'm connected with my team on a, on a quarterly basis. I work with a lot of agents. No one's having problems selling homes. Interest rates, I just got a, a package back at like a 7.5% interest rate on a conventional mortgage. That might have been because we're trying to avoid the seasoning period of six months, but the interest rates are high. And in New Jersey, in our market, like it's it's not an issue. So I'm not really accounting for that. You know, I'm not, that's not really in my account of what if. My account is, well, what if the values keep going up? You know, like that's how yeah. I think. What if they keep going up? Like, you know? Yeah. And are you doing any projects out of state? No, I don't do any projects out of state. I did build a small rental portfolio in Milwaukee, Wisconsin at the start of 2020. When, uh, when COVID, I was mentoring students and I found a student who was really dedicated to the business. And what got me into Milwaukee was because we found like a three unit property for like $25,000. And once I seen like the price difference from Jersey to there, I kind of got addicted to it early on. But again, if I could do all that over, I would have never bought none of them houses out there. You know? Why? Because like... The prices are, are like, so the prices are cheaper, but then the market base of like the people, like the, the rents are six, seven, eight hundred dollars a month. Now that same house I'm buying for $25,000 back then was probably only worth $60,000, you know, and then you can't like, you can't renovate it the way you want. Like I would do in Jersey because you're going to be over leveraged. 
And then the tenants, like, you know, I got a property manager, but even just looking at the files that the tenants, like they complain. And then I've been through like the COVID don't pay your, your mortgage. None of them paid. So it's just a headache. And then versus New Jersey during COVID, I rented out one of my properties and this union worker came to me and he said, I'll pay the rent for the year up front. Now that doesn't happen all the time, but it's just a different clientele base of people. So I would have rather took that money and I was buying them properties cash. I probably spent like four or $500,000 and picked up like 25 units. And I'm just now turning the entire portfolio over to all cash flow. So it, it took me almost three years to get tenants out or go through each process. I put a tenant in, they won't last too long. They'll leave, they'll break the lease. You could chase them down in court, but they ain't worth nothing. They don't have anything. But I've finally been able to turn the portfolio over to get it working in my favor. And now I'm happy. But I asked myself, what could I have done with that money if I would have parked it in a better place? Definitely. Are you doing mainly long-term? Are you doing any midterm or short-term rentals? I'm more... When you say midterm, are you talking about like the portfolio of like how long am I keeping it for or just like short-term rentals like Airbnb? Yeah, like short-term rentals and then midterm rentals is like 30 days or anywhere, it's, but it's less than 12 months. So what I do is typically long-term rentals with my out-of-state portfolio. In New Jersey, because we're at the beach, I do do short-term rental. I just finished up a property where we have our final inspections on Wednesday, and then I have the movers moving in all of our stuff. We're a little late on this project, but I love the short-term rental here in Jersey because like, I could probably, for this house, get $2,600, $2,700 a month in rent. But when I put it on the summertime rentals, and I'm probably going to charge $300 to $350 a night on it, I'll probably make like six, seven grand a, a month on the deal. So I can literally, if I started on time for June, July, August, September, that gross amount of rent would be more than if I rented it for the entire year. So I get to make the maximum amount of rents without having a long-term tenant in the property, which is cool, which keeps it safe. It keeps the property less deferred maintenance because I have a cleaner coming in every week. I have a maintenance guy. If there's little issues that get fixed right then and there versus a long-term tenant where they may not want to tell you about the issues and they move out three or four years later and you got holes in your walls, your refrigerator door handle then came off. You can't find the parts to it anymore. So I do love the short-term rentals, but it is a lot of work. Like, you know, only because like I managed it and I managed the cleaner just to make extra money on it. Short-term rentals I do like, but we do have long-term rentals in Jersey, but the ones that are closer to the beach, we do do short-term rental with. And I have to know what was your worst deal so far? Yes. Yes. So my worst deal so far. Oh man. So Long story short, at the face value, I lost $70,000 on this deal. But in reality, I lost a half a million dollars on this deal. And I'm explaining to you why. So we found a deal in a town called Lavalette, New Jersey. So I'm not sure. Have you ever heard of Seaside Heights? No. Okay. So have you ever watched this show years ago, The Jersey Shore? Yeah. Okay. So that was Seaside Heights where they, where they did that show, walking on that boardwalk and all in all them crazy clubs and acting crazy. That was literally over that bridge is where I grew up at, like right over there, right? So there's a town north of Seaside Heights called Lava. It's a very small, it's a beach town. It's literally probably like 30 blocks and it's, that's it. But it's very desirable over there. Million dollar homes, the water, the ocean is like where my house was. You come out the door, you walk three minutes, you're at the ocean. One way you walk three minutes, the other way you're at the bay. Very desirable area. And again, this is where, you know, me and my partner, 
we didn't bump, we both were in agreement to do this deal, you know, but he probably was in a little bit less agreement, less excited about it more than me. We were excited because it was our first potential to sell a million dollar house, right? So we did the property, but we went wrong with the property. And the reason why we went wrong is because I counted myself out before I ever gotten a deal. And in this area, what they're doing is they're taking these older homes and they're knocking them down. They're building up new shore homes. And because I felt I never even tried to pitch it to my lender, I felt that he wouldn't give me the loan. I just renovated the property. So it was, it was like a duplex home. It was actually two separate houses on one lot. Very small homes. We bought this thing for, I don't even remember, like dollars $560,000, $570,000. $560, $570, we went over budget. We put $180,000 into both the properties. We were all in this house. And on top of that, I still remember when my lender gave me the package on the deal, he said, you should try to get the seller to hold the note for you. And I look back and I, I'm starting to understand why he was telling me that. And I ignored it. I said, nope, it doesn't matter. And I had to bring like $150,000 to closing. And I never, ever bring nowhere near that much money to it. But we was loaded with money. We, we probably done went up, came off like three or four flips. We made six figures on. So we had a ton of money. I'm like, you know what? Wire it. I don't care. This is going to be our first million dollar home. I can't wait to shoot content and show the world that I'm selling million dollar homes at the beach. And that's all I cared about. I did not care about the numbers, the risk, that I was doing the entire project the wrong way, completely doing it the wrong way. Long story short, my loan on this house was $700,000 because I put the 150 down. My loan with the hard money loan was $700,000. We put the house on the market at like $1.50. We didn't get any offers. Oh, we were getting offers. Like that was a thing. And I knew the market was hot. Oh, we got traction on the deal, but it just wasn't at that price. Long story short, we sold the house at $875, right? So we were all in this property. So I put $150,000 down and I went $30,000 over my budget, right? So I put $180,000 down. And when I sold the house for like eight seventy five or eight fifty, and had commissions and holding costs every month of five thousand, I was paying. It took me like six months, so I paid really like two hundred and ten thousand or more. I think about it, cash. And when I closed, I got one hundred thirty thousand dollars in my pocket. Oh no, that must have hurt. I lost that seventy thousand, but I've lost more money than that, Sophia. Here's why: because the opportunity cost of the money that I tied in that deal. So that $200,000 over that six months, I could have bought four houses and put anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $50,000 on down on them houses that I was used to doing and the ones that were working for me and made eighty dollars to $100,000 on them four houses. So I look at that as well. Like not only did I lose on paper $70,000, but I tied up $210,000 for six months during the hottest season. So while I was doing that project, I was wholesaling some amazing deals and I was making $30,000, on them houses. But I'm looking back like, man, I could have kept that one as a rental. I could have flipped that one, made 80, 90,000. I should have never bought this house. And then there was another house, two doors down from another flip I did that was successful. And I gave it to one of my buyers at uh, $330,000. I made $2,500 on the deal. He bought it for $335,000 put about 120,000 into it and sold it for 650. And my partner one day came up to me. He was like, yo, you're going to be mad at me. I'm like, why? What happened? He like, you remember that deal we sold to, um, the guy name is Mortavez. It's hard to pronounce his name. He was like, yo, 
he got it under contract right now for 660000 And I'm like, what? But in reality, we were so tied up in this one deal. Even if I wanted to do that deal, I was capped out because I tied myself into this deal. So it was kind of like a, I told you so on both ends. Like, I told you we should have bought that deal. And then he was more like, I told you we shouldn't have bought this deal. So it was one of those situations. But yeah, that deal right there, I mean, I learned a lot from it, but... I'm, it doesn't scare me. Like, I'm not scared of continuing to do real estate. I know what I did wrong in that deal. Like, if I just, like, didn't know what I did wrong, that would be different. I should have never renovated the houses. I should have knocked them down and rebuilt the rebuilt one single-family home. And I would have probably spent more, but I would have sold it for maybe around, like, 1.3 to 1.5 and actually made a little more profit. But it would have cost more skin in the game. It would have been more like $300,000, $350,000 of my money tied up. So... I shouldn't have did the deal more of the story. Mm. And on the opposite end of that, what's your best deal so far? Okay, so my best deal that I've done, this was an amazing deal. And it happened like right after that deal. So we were okay. We picked up this condo, right? And it's funny because this guy, this is the power of follow-up in real estate. A year ago, we were doing text messaging and this was in about 2021. He didn't want to sell his property. Our price was too low. We offered him like, $250,000 $250,000 on this property. He said no to it. I hired an acquisition manager, this young kid that was 18 years old. He's not with me anymore, but I'm still in contact with him. He was doing follow-ups and he followed up with this lead. And this guy was just, in a matter of a year, must have just became so motivated to sell this condo. So he gave us the condo for $220,000. I don't even think he realized we were the same company that offered him a year ago, $250,000. So he gave us his condo for $220,000. The condo needed minimum work. Very nice area right across the street from the Ocean County Mall. We put $40,000 into this condo. Basic floors, kitchens, paint, ceiling fans, minimum work in this condo. It took us maybe three weeks to do this condo. We sold this condo for $430,000. Did all this in like a matter of like 60 days. And on that project there, we made, what did we make? I think over $150,000 on that property there. So we were all in the property 260. We sold it for 430, right? So we pretty much made like $180,000 as close to that in 60 days. And also what's cool is this, my partner's a licensed realtor. So even when we sell our houses, we pay that commission, but we get it back. Like we get half the commission, that 2% commission also goes back into our business. So we always make like that extra on top of it. So that was our best deal. It was the easiest deal we did. And it kind of made up for that loss or like kind of took the pain off the loss a little bit. But I look back to this day and I just, I don't really get frustrated, but I just say, man, if I did not buy that house and I bought the one that I sold and only made $2,500, I would have probably been rolling into this year. I would probably be up a million dollars more than what I am right now. Just off of that one mistake slowed me down a million dollars. And that's the tough part about real estate that people don't think about. I never preach to anybody that real estate is easy. It's a simple concept. You buy a house, you fix it up, you sell it for more than you bought it. That's simple. But it's not easy to negotiate the price fair enough to anticipate and have a good construction team and then sell it and all that to happen in a timely manner and, and for you to make six figures a month. But we got so good at that, Sophia, because we started with wholesaling real estate. Most people want to come in and start flipping and being landlords right away. And you don't know how to evaluate a deal. You don't know nothing about the market. You don't know, you don't know nothing about the neighborhood. So when you see a seller asking for 250 and you see that the house is worth 350 
but it needs a lot of work. You think that's a deal, but that's not a deal because you got to put eighty dollars to $100,000 into that house. So you really need the house at, instead of two fifty, you really need that one fifty. And you're so scared to offer one fifty because they want two fifty, or you see it's worth three fifty. So most people will lose in real estate because they don't know how to actually put deals together. But we did over two hundred of them, one hundred and fifty of them before we ever bought our first property. Hmm. Wow, that must have been cool to be able to analyze that many deals before you even start. Wow. Yeah. And I love that you had the best deal right after the worst deal because it makes it all better to have that. And I'm curious, like, how many times do you have, like, the construction and you stay on budget versus how many times does it go over budget? So to be honest, I've been blessed with an amazing contractor now, but it took me two lawsuits. Well, the first law, I never went through with the lawsuit, but I'm in a lawsuit currently. But so I went over budget on my worst deal. $30,000 over budget. But other than that, the one thing I can say about my contractor now is that he sticks to the price that he gives me. So like we're doing a project now. We're almost done with it's another good deal. We have a mortgage on this one for about $403,000. We're anticipating to sell it for about $570,000. We're like almost done with it. We're down to like the last 30 days. But with this deal, and I told him this in the beginning because I showed buyers the house and one buyer pointed out that like, there was termite damage on the support beam. So when he came in, he didn't think he would have to change the support beam or the entire support beam. But when we brought the architect in, the architect pretty much said, yeah, we got to change it. And then we had to put a support beam for the second floor. And the architect required this steel beam that's a lot more expensive than what he expected. So long story short, he would kind of just like, he gave me a budget of 150. And I know it's stressing them out now because we're towards the end of the project. So, you know, he's pretty much probably spent his little bit of profit. Uh, so he's pretty much working to keep the relationship going. But the one thing I can honestly say I've done maybe six projects with him is that even when I went over budget, it was only over budget because we had never accounted for what we added into the project. So it wasn't like a, we agreed on a number and he started charging me more. It was things I started adding and, and I didn't realize all I was doing was opening the cut up worse and worse because I didn't realize I was losing. So every extra dollar I was putting, trying to make the house better, all I was doing was ripping the cut open and making it bleed worse. But yeah, he's an amazing contractor, you know, and he sticks by his word, you know. So, and I explained that to my partner, like, we got to keep him busy. Like, you know, even if we don't want to deal with the risk of the deal, if it makes sense and we can get it done, this also benefits him, you know. We don't really, I haven't had them issues since I've gotten with this contractor for the last two, two and a half years. And how did you vet him and find him? So I got him through a referral. My partner actually found him through a good realtor we were working with. So he was doing a lot of handiwork for her, for other investors. But we pretty much then like took over him. Like he works for us full time now. So like we just keep him busy. He's doing three projects for us right now. And I'm, I'm trying to put three more projects on him. But, you know, that's, that's a challenge that I'm working on right now. That's awesome. And what is something that you do every day that's non-negotiable for you? So something that I do every day is I follow my morning routine, my morning ritual. So what I do every morning is I get up, um, I pray. So that's one thing I do every single morning. And I just, I like just, I pray for clarity, you know, and I pray, I pray for gratitude. Like I pray to be thankful that I'm here and I just pray for clarity because, you know, in this world, 
you know, they say walk by faith and not by sight. And even when you're walking by faith, you always just, you're always wondering, is my faith right? But that's faith. Faith is something that you believe that is real, that you can't prove that's real or that's right. So um, I, I pray every morning. I go to the gym, you know, and um, I plug into my business. So that's something that like years ago when I first got into entrepreneurship, I would wake up, jump on my phone, be on Instagram or look at my text messages. And I can literally just throw my day off just by reading the wrong text message or even looking at the wrong Instagram post that just comes up that's just so disconnected from where you're trying to go. And it can just do something psychologically to you that you don't realize. So what I try to do is I try to dominate the morning is what I call it. Do my morning ritual. Dominate every morning. Like you said, even with you, I was up. I was ready. I say, you know what? I, got, I look at my calendar every single night. I look at my calendar. Okay, I got this. I got that. And I'm on, I'm on like a mini vacation right now. So it's, it's tougher when you're not home. But I try to stay as disciplined as possible and dominate my mornings because if I get my morning going right, the rest of the day is going to be perfect. Yeah, mornings are so important. I do the gym every morning because if yeah. I don't, like I'm a bit moody and my yeah. mornings just like aren't the same without it. Exactly. And I have a final question for you. So if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20-year-old self, what would you want to tell him? Or if you want to tell him nothing at all, that's an option as well. Right. I mean, for the face value, I would say not tell him nothing at all. But now that I've got older, I would say that, what would I say to my 20-year-old self? I would say to my 20-year-old self that I, sh I should be more confident in myself. I realized that in all of my endeavors in business, I've always, I tend to want to do it with someone. Like every business I'm in, I have a partner, you know? Um, and, I, and I realized that I guess the confidence in myself, and I have a lot of confidence, but I always will say, you know what? Let me partner with this person. Let me partner with that, that person. I would tell myself if I could do it all over again and what I've built and not to say that I not to say I'm not thankful for any of my partners. And I don't know if it's the best way to look at it, but what if I did all this by myself? You know, like what if I built this empire or did it by myself? Just having a little bit more confidence in myself. Um, that's probably what I would say to my 20 year old self, just been a little bit more confident and um, kind of getting there, you know, but other than that, I'm still thankful for team because to, you know, to kind of contradict that, I probably wouldn't be where I am today without being open-minded and not selfish about bringing on team members and having people help me on this journey. Mm, I love that. I feel like it's very hard to have confidence when you're 20. Yeah. That's such a valuable skill. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for doing this today. No, thank you. It was amazing. I appreciate the questions. It was really, really good. It's so cool to pick your brain about wholesaling and flipping because like everyone has like a different buy box. Everyone has a different strategy. Like everyone has like a different way of doing real estate. And it's cool to like be able to compare ways, like see what's working for someone, what's not working. Yeah, I love it. Nice, nice. So I would say out of everybody that you've like interviewed, I guess real estate related, not so much how do you compare this conversation, but I guess what stands out maybe about this conversation versus other people's? What stands out about your conversation, what's interesting is how you stay in New Jersey. I really yeah. like that and how you were shared that experience about going to Milwaukee and what happened there. Because I feel like some people go out of state 
and that works for them. Some people it doesn't work for like everyone's different, but it's interesting to be able to hear those different facets. And then something that also worked for you really well is being able to see all those deals. And you got that experience that a lot of people don't have. A lot of people just learn through like losing money on multiple properties. And then they get that same lesson that you maybe got at the beginning. You still had different hard lessons later on, but to be able to have that foundation in the beginning, I think is really cool. And how you're able to have, you know, your background, which is like such a different background. And the fact that you didn't stay there in like your hometown and like what they were doing and were able to transition into real estate. I think that's really cool and powerful. Right, right. No, I appreciate that. I think that's probably the best thing is that we stayed in the same market for so long because people want to bounce around. They, they're trying to find, oh, they said this area is a new hot area and everyone chases there. But you're going to look up five to 10 years from now, most people, and they're not going to have a, a primary market. They're not going to like me. The unfortunate part about my markets, there's not a lot of multifamily, but there, you know, but from a residential standpoint, you can give me an address and I could probably tell you exactly where it is and what homes are worth in 75% of the county, you know, and that, and that's the, that's a competitive advantage to have versus like, when I'm looking at my students' deals and I'm like, look, I can tell you what I know, but a cash buyer in that market is going to be more valuable than me at this point. So that's the biggest thing I'm super thankful is that we stay committed. And New Jersey is a tough real estate market. It is really tough here, but it's easy for us. Yeah. 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 And then like five years from now, 10 years from now, all of the deals that you have and done in those five or 10 years, it's going to be even more valuable because you yeah. guys really own that market versus like jumping around. Yep. Very true. And where can we find you? Where can we stalk you online? Yes. Yes. So you guys can find me on Instagram at Mr. Isaac Grace. So it's I-S-S-A-C. Also, if you guys text me at my number, I don't know why I'm going blank right now. What is my keyword number again? I'm sorry. I got my, my lady with me. What's my keyword again? Hope. Oh, my goodness. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so if you guys text the word hope. So just like a little quick one little side story. So also during my journey, um, I do mentor and coach people. I, I've created the name the Millennial Hope Dealer. Hope just stands for helping others pursue excellence. So my mission is to help millennial entrepreneurs pursue excellence through business. So if you guys text me the word hope to 732 314-7978. Um, I give you guys a free, a free starter guide in the business, how to get started, how to close deals. And you guys will also get an opportunity to buy my ebook. I wrote a book two years ago showing people exactly what we somewhat talked about on how to go out there and wholesale real estate. The book is like $9, very, very cheap. And I also have a mentorship program that I uh, just discounted, um, super, super discounted for $97 a month. You get like live training from me, my wholesaling courses, access to our student community. We try to make it so, so affordable because real estate is, it, it's hard. Like the concept is easy, but the grit and the work is hard. And like, rather than me charging five, $10,000, you know, I'll rather charge a smaller fee in a hopes that maybe a partnership can cultivate and that student can use their additional capital to kind of invest into their business. So that's creating cash and real estate academy.com. You can check that out. But if you text me at my number 732-314-7978 and ask me any questions or DM me on Instagram at Mr. Isaac Grace, I'll be more than happy to um, help any of your viewers out. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening. 
I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.